You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was super excited to have Evel Stanford on the podcast today. I love the way Evel believes in herself, the way she teaches others to believe in themselves, and the way she has such reverence for the people that she works with and the people that she has the privilege to lead. I believe in service. And sometimes I am too scared, Alan. I'm too scared to be there, right? But what I've got to do is think about the people who need to come after me. So the way I get the strength to do what I need to do is I think about who had to sacrifice for me to be where I am. This week, I'm speaking with Yvel Stanford about growing talent, leading with purpose, and serving early career employees, particularly in the public sector. Yvel is a lifelong teacher and learner. She spent nearly 15 years as a professor at Baruch College at the City University of New York before she left to blaze a trail in learning and development at the city's Metropolitan Transit Authority. Yvel is currently the MTA's Deputy Chief of Organizational Design and Development, and she's passionate about developing emerging leaders and creating an environment where people can thrive and grow. I met her at Chief Learning Officer Conference where she blew the roof off the place, so I knew I had to have her one-on-one. Yvel, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me, Alan. I appreciate this. Thank you. Yeah, so let's start by talking just about your path. How did you come to the position you hold now? So at the MTA, I actually came from teaching from the City University, and I started off in HR. I began as an HR analyst. So when I came here, I was at a place called Bridges and Tunnels at the MTA, and that's literally... (laughs) That's literally the bridges and tunnels. And I thought, oh, my gosh, there's got to be a way that I get closer to what I know while not minding learning. And so I heard about New York City Transit and tried my best to meet the president of New York City Transit. Literally found out that he was going to be at a building in Brooklyn. And I ran myself over there. (laughs) As soon as someone told me, I said, you got to let me know when this guy comes over here because I'm going to literally just run up to him and give him my pitch and tell him what I got. And I I did that. I caught him by the elevator and I I had my pitch, like literally my elevator pitch (laughs) at the elevator and it didn't work. He thought I was crazy. Um, (laughs) But I told him I had a lot more to offer. I was able to do a couple of committees. Once I did that, I got exposure to the other agencies. There are like six other agencies. And they saw some of what I could do. And then I came to transit and I started teaching. And so I started to get back into what I know. And then I started to build programs. And now I am over all of the agencies, at least six of them, 70,000 employees and I'm here to help people grow and learn and build their capabilities. So that's what I do. Yeah, which is crazy. 70,000 people. But it starts with what's interesting. It started with being told no. So you had that elevator pitch. Bang. No. Yeah. What happened? How did you bounce back? How did you recover? (laughs) 
Yeah. So I took a big chance, right? He looked at me like, I'm not giving you a job just because you gave me an elevator pitch. But I don't think that that's ever where you stop. I think that if you tried, then that's the beginning. And so I said, oh, man, that really didn't work out. But I kept getting better at delivering what was valuable to that organization. And so I built one program, then I built another one, and then I, I realized they didn't have project management there, and I'm certified in that. So I, I told them I could teach 3,000 people in three months project management, and they took me up on the challenge, and that was the ultimate interview because I did it. <laughs> I killed it. And so when I went on the interview, I had a lot of stakeholders that said that I knew what I was doing. So yeah, starts off with no, but never stop there. And tell me about creating the whole package and selling the package. I know you've said in the past, like you, you really had to, to buckle down, do your homework. How, how did you figure all that out? Or just tell me how, you know, what you did. In terms of this organization, I was once again in what I call a hard hat environment. A hard hat environment, literally I have hard hats behind me that I've worn, that I've had to learn and earn to wear. And essentially it meant, yes, that was finding Mr. Bianco at the elevator. But it was also convincing people in New York City Transit that I understood them. So letting them know by my own research, by listening, by finding out, like, what do you value? What do you need? Finding out exactly what they need and understanding that it's not always about the suit. And if it's about the suit and you got to put on the, you know, you've heard me say, Alan, the Timbos, that's like the Timberlands. Those are the boots. Yeah. You got to get on a track. You got to go up a pylon. You got to figure out what people need. So I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to, you know, kick those sandals, kick those, we call them chancletas, kick those heels to the side, wear what you need to, pound the pavement with people and find out who they are. Yeah. And so the role that you're in right now, you're you're what I would call the chief learning officer, but that job didn't exist. And you didn't, the job didn't exist that you got hired <laughs> for. And That job didn't exist. <laughs> it didn't exist. So whose idea was it to create it? So I came to this organization with the idea I saw the chief learning officer, believe it or not, I saw the chief learning officer magazine. And I was like, chief learning officer, are you kidding me? Like, that's amazing. Like the person who comes up with the talent agenda for an organization. So I said, oh, I'm at this organization. I'm an HR analyst now, but let me tell you, I'm going to be the chief learning officer. No one knew what I was talking about, but I found out that they had breakfast for the chief learning officers. And so I started to tune in. It didn't exist, but I knew this organization needed it. <laughs> so essentially, when I started building the programs, it's kind of what I teach. I teach that you have to decide what your purpose is somewhere. Like, what are you trying to do? And they didn't have chief learning officer, but I started to steer them in that direction. So literally before this program, before this this team, which I built my own team, I'm like a startup inside of a public enterprise. I set out all of the, you know, the staff, job descriptions, everything. Like I built this place. I came to them and I said, I want to lead training. So I led training at Transit. And then when I left Transit and they decided they were going to transform, meaning that they were going to merge, I said, I'm that person. And, and I wasn't able to go to the meetings because I didn't have the in. And I started to ask people where the meeting was. Like, 
where's the meeting? Because I should be there. Like, I'm this person who's creating the things that you're showing people. And I don't know if you know, like, about the work world, people don't invite their competition to the meeting. You know what I mean? Like, they don't say, come to the meeting. And I say, well, when's the meeting happening? And they told me. And I went and I sat there in the meeting. And it was weird because there was literally no space for me. And so I had heard someone else say, well, if there is no seat at the table, create one. And I've gone beyond that. And I said, if there is no seat at the table, not only do you bring your own seat, but eventually you create your own table. And I am the table. At the MTA, I created a table where people like me can sit and people who are not like me can sit. And if you're about building your capability, then come on. This is the table. You know, they say like lean in. No, not just lean in. Like get the table. I'm the table. Pull your seat up. Pull your seat. And what I want you to do is make a table. You become the table so other people like you or not like you can sit at that table and feel good about it. So I want to know how you got the courage to do that. But I'm going to just quote. So these researchers at Wharton and Harvard, they studied this gender gap in self-promotion. They looked at job applications and looked at the skills and they asked men and women who were equally talented to rate themselves. And the men, of course, they read it like, oh yeah, I, I, I can get that job. That's all me. And women with the exact same skills, some women even more talented, better, would look at it and say, you know, no, uh, I, I'm not good enough. I don't, I, they rate themselves with much lower confidence. And you've dealt with this your whole life. And I think it's a, obviously it's a major issue if, if academics are studying it. So how do you build up enough self-confidence to say, yeah, hell yeah, I'm good enough for that job? Absolutely. Um, at Baruch, I remember... I was in charge of a program. So I was faculty, and then I decided to take on a senior admin position. And that position was to lead a program that was called Executives on Campus. And essentially what I was doing is connecting with like 500 executives to come to what people were calling the poor man's Harvard, uh, Baruch College, to come to Baruch and find a mentee and ultimately give them an opportunity in their organization. And oftentimes... I had to fight hard for those students to even get in the back office and then prove themselves to be in the front office of many companies. Essentially, yes, you have to think about who's not in the room so that you can be the table. You have to think about when you couldn't be in the room and somehow somebody thought about you and they made a way for you. So, yes, my advice is to think about who sacrificed for you, to think about who you can sacrifice for, and honestly, to be strong enough, and I say courageous enough, to trust yourself. Mm. And by the way, modesty, so I think you heard me say that, you got to push modesty in a corner. You kick modesty to the curb. Because for women, modesty is one of the things that honestly decreases our chances. And I'm not saying this without a tremor behind, you know, the back of my heart. I, I, I really do think it's difficult. But yes, the studies do show that, especially in transportation, our numbers are low and women of color even lower, single digits. So we're under 20% in transportation and under 10% for women of color. So we got to we got to just give up on that 
curtsy and put those timbos on. (laughs) So what do you do when you find yourself in your job with 3,000 open job recs? How do you create a talent pipeline for that? How do you use some of the things you just talked about to get that diversity of background and spirit and people? I got this job in 2020. And honestly, I got the job because I started a campaign to speak to people in the organization, right? So I realized that a lot of people used to come into work and they were just home. And I and I said, holy smokes, I, I'm, we're going to start. Like I started to tell my team, when people are scared and they're at home, we could be helpful. And if you're scared, you got to take that scared and you got to be helpful to people. So what we're going to do, and I told them, we're going to make 60 courses virtually. My daughter actually showed me how to set up, you know, she was doing social media up in the third floor in the attic of the house. And she says, mom, I'll set you up here. She set me up and I started something I call Transit University. I started a university and people were laughing. What do you mean you're going to start a university? I'm like, yeah, we're going to do 80 courses. And and I said, the way things are going, we're going to be holed up for like four months. Let's do that. Got the whole team together and we started kicking off classes by, by using our phones, our iPhones. We started doing leadership programs. I said, when you feel helpless, be helpful. We came up with 60 courses and that kicked off Transit University. That Transit University is basically what I told the MTA about, that what we could do is put the MTA University together to start building people. 3,000 vacancies. So at our organization, we were caught between like the great resignation, people deciding that, you know, it was time for them to leave. Half of our organization was over 50. And 3,000 vacancies, they kept saying 3,000 vacancies. I'm thinking, I'm not recruiting. I feel sad for recruiting. Oh my God, what are they going to do? And so again, if you feel helpless, be helpful. And I said, I just came from the city university. I was counting tokens. If somebody would have told me that if I came and worked after school or on weekends, or if I had an internship that I would have a job, oh man, I'd give them everything I got. And by the way, my family would be so grateful that they don't have to worry about me. And so I put together a proposal and I pitched the proposal for a CUNY MTA partnership. I pitched it to our new chief administrative officer. And she's like, really? Yeah, I think we can do that. She pitched it to our chairman and he said, let's do it. And so I start talking to CUNY. They start sitting in the meetings with me. I polish up this proposal and I commit to 150 young people coming to the MTA And when I'm saying young people, I'm young too, okay? So let me just say that. So new professionals, I wanted them to leave school and walk into a job. And that's what we've been able to do. And we're putting a dent in those 3,000 vacancies because I've made partnerships with not just CUNY, but SUNY, with other private colleges, and I've got a talent pipeline. And as you get those early career people in, How do you make sure they're successful? How do you help them thrive as a leader? Well, I fought pretty hard for a couple of things. In addition to giving them a opportunity when they come here, especially that first year, and this is only our second year of this program, I meet them at the door. 
right? So in their first orientation, it's, hi, this is who I am. You're going to make it. You're going to be able to do this. So making sure that they get a a bright start, that they're nervous, (laughs) but walking the floors with them to show them who they're going to be introduced to, who they're going to interview with. It's also having professional development for them, giving them, believe it or not, Udemy licenses, telling them where to sign up and sign on um, so that they can have. Yeah, beautiful. (laughs) It's true. Saying some, hey, there's self-directed learning that you can do. You can also sit with your future colleagues in our training. I tell them that they need to leave their fingerprint on this organization, that they have to learn how to deal with five generations in the workforce and make the best relationships, but make an impact that they belong here, that they do not need to be anyone else, but they need to understand how to value the experience. So what I found is oftentimes when you come to an organization, and I said that, you know, the generations are skewed, right? There are people who have been here 20 years, 30 years, 10 years. And so if you're just getting out of school and you're like, oh my gosh, 10 years, you're there 20 years. I'm like, Hey, I'm not telling you have to stay here that long, but some people have made it their choice to do that. How about if we learn from each other? How about if we build together? How about if we respect each other? And how about if we find a way to stand side by side to do what we need to do and serve the New York City residents and get them from place to place? And Honestly, there will be places that I'm walking around and I will see young professionals with hard hats and they're like, hey, hi, remember me? (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh, how are you doing? Because they're making their own way. It's not like I'm telling you to come to this organization, just sit there and let someone tell you what to do the whole day. I, I do say that you need to value their experiences, but they jump in hard hats and all. It's pretty awesome. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. So I think you have a philosophy of really helping people believe in themselves to dream bigger, to aspire to more, right? So all these people that you're recruiting, you're bringing in the early career and out of colleges. How did growing up influence your leadership philosophy? (laughs) Yeah, so I grew up in New York City for the most part and between Harlem and the Bronx. And in, in Harlem, so I would go see my my great-grandmother, and she would walk me down the block. And if she wasn't with me, she would tell me, because I had to do it while I walked, so I used to have to say hello to every person that you walk by, which to me, I used to feel was pretty exhausting because we would go from our house and we, hello, Miss Sosa, hello, Miss Sosa, hello, Miss Sosa. So you had to address everybody, which meant that there were certain people that stuck out for me. She liked to to ride the bus, 
And so we get on the bus. And when we get on the bus, it was like, hello, Mr. Bus Driver, how are you? Right. And if you wanted to be safe, you would, if you were getting on the train because it was too far, then you would be by the conductor because that was, you know, let's be safe. Let's sit by the conductor. She surprised me one day when I got on the bus and she said that she had a, you know, she had a a surprise for me. She says, wow, you're not going to believe what's going to happen. And I got on the bus and I, I saw my dad on the bus. He was driving the bus. And I was like, oh, my gosh, he's driving the bus. He had on one of those those uniforms, just like the guys that I would see going to work that I really, really thought a lot of, you know, Mr. Bus Driver. He was Mr. Bus Driver. So I have a reverence for the public servants because they got me safely from one place to another. They got me from the Bronx on the 36th bus where I would leave my mom and go to my grandma and and make my way Um to Lenox Avenue. So I think I told you, Alan, that it it wasn't long after I was working at the MTA and and I just got this job and I was kind of feeling like, whoo, look at me, I just got this job. And I was humble because I was walking on Livingston and one of the bus drivers opened the door and he said, hey, how you doing, Miss Claudie's granddaughter? And I said, oh my gosh, my grandmother has passed on for some time. But this guy, he only knew me as Miss Claudia's granddaughter because remember, I had to say hello, hello, hello as I walked up and down the street. And my reverence for the bus drivers never stopped. And it humbled me. And I said, you're here to serve them. You're here to serve them. You must have been pretty proud to see your dad as a bus driver. Oh, my goodness. I really was. Because like I said, even still, it takes years for people to get that seat. It's one of those those things that you put in for, but years later you can become. And so your family's waiting for that stability. Your family's waiting for you to get that job. So you have a perspective. I think some people see the job of a manager to hire, fire, motivate people, reward people. And I've heard you say that leading is something that people give you the honor to do, which I thought was beautiful. How did you come to that point of view? I've been managing for a long time. And I think that when I, the first management job I got, it wasn't that simple. Someone, you know, they handed it to me. They let me have it. They told me, basically it was an older woman. I was so happy that I had this job. It was in a market research firm. And she said to me, "Um, excuse me, miss, you have to know that I'm working hard here and you have to think about how you talk to me. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So what was I doing? I thought that I was talking to her in a way that was respectful. And she let me quickly know. And that was decades ago. And I had to she she dressed me down further. And I'm going to say like 10 years later, I had a situation where I was a manager and there was a woman who she would come to work every day late. And I said to her, do you know you've been late? And she talked to me in Spanish, dressed me down again. So there's like levels that you learn And she explained to me that she had walked all the way from East New York to downtown Brooklyn, that she needed this job. She had just started the job. She did not have a Metro card. Not only did I get her a Metro card, but I got the message. I got the message that you can affect the people that you're sitting in front of, that you're managing. So much so now that I realize that it is an honor, that you get to help build them. You get to help empower them to be the heroes in their families. And so... It's about the management being capable. 
And that's what you have to do. You have to work hard to be capable enough to bring the genius out in people, not just tell them your title. There's a feeling that you have, this feeling of pride and honor of per- and purpose, and it's missing in a lot of organizations. So what advice do you have for these people that are listening, that work at a company where they're not feeling that? How do they get it? Or how do you create that in your company? How does a great leader turn that around? Well, I think there are a couple of things that you need to do. You need to take stock of the things that you would do for free. Teaching is something that I would do for free. It's something that I like to do. And when I say teaching, I don't mean like standing above someone on a podium and teaching. I mean, oh, you do this this way. So it's the thing that you would do and you can't stop doing. So think about that as, as your preferred destination for purpose. The other thing is, think about the disciplines that you have. The disciplines, the rituals, that even when it's hard, you do it anyway. And for me, that is helping people to smile, honestly, to feel proud of themselves. And I'm, I'm even saying people who not always are nice to me, but I'm paying it forward. So the thing that is a ritual for you that you're committed to, employ that as part of your destiny. And then I'm going to say that remember that the person that someone could be talking to could be your own mom or your own kid. It's interesting when you have young adult kids and they come home and they say how their boss talked to them and how it made them feel. So my message is to remember that you are in charge. You get to be in charge of how someone's feeling today and think about what that means to you. Yeah, I love it. You know, the Maya Angelou quote, people won't remember what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. I love that quote. So, Yvelle, let's talk about your superpower. You bring people together. You shapeshifter, you. Talk to me about bringing people together. How'd you figure out, how'd you become good at that? Wow. Um, So, How did I become good at that? So when I was doing my graduate work, I was at a place called La Casa de Un Pedro. And this was in Newark, New Jersey. And La Casa was a community-based organization. I went there intentionally because it was a Latin organization and I would get the opportunity to help them build a credit union to deal also with women in that community that were illiterate in two languages. And I went there not knowing that a lot of the funding, the Hispanic community was fighting against the black community for the same funding. And so here I'm at this Spanish speaking organization looking at black people competing for the same funds when they could help the whole community. And one day I was like, why are you fighting to like outdo this other community? Why don't we come together, put in our grants together and get the money together so no one can get the money but us combined? So I started to think about, oh my gosh, like where are the gaps and how could we help people? So I asked the city council person, and she was a black city council person, to believe me to help this Hispanic organization to teach Latin women 
how to be firefighters. <laughs> and I spoke to them. I said, basically, this is how many hours you're going to get. So you want to raise your kids. You want to be there for the family. You're going to get this much time that you have to work. But the other time is what you can work with for your family because the family happened to be very important. So we worked together, helped them study for the test. It was so amazing because Newark wasn't used to that. La Casa came together with the James Community Church. We started to get grants together. And it was so interesting because I was sitting there thinking like, collard greens versus, you know, I call maduros, like plantains. Stop it, y'all. Stop it. Let's come together. Let's work together. So yes, um, my superpower, I said, was shape-shifting because I thought about mystique. And I, I said that, and I meant this, that mystique understood that she was strongest when she was green and scaly. Now, mystique could get pretty scary early on in her life. But as she got older, she was leading the rest of the superheroes, no matter how scary those superheroes were. She brought them together and she showed them how to use their superpowers to do what they needed to do. But often they would see her shift even in genders from one thing to another to become the true person that she is. And for me, it's been multi-ethnic, it's been community, it's been city government. And now it's the MTA, it's chancletas, it's timbos, it's making sure that you don't think that a part of you is not good enough to sit in the seat that you sit in. There's many parts of you to sit in the seat that you sit in. All right, as we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, what are you curious about and learning now, personally or professionally? Anything. I am curious in learning more about, this is interesting, neuro-linguistic programming. So I understand we talked about modesty and what people think they can do. It's not what they can do because they can do it, but what they think they can do. And I'd like to learn more about neuro-linguistic programming to assist people in programming their mind to live out their thoughts and their dreams. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Eval. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate this and I appreciate you. And I hope that I'm helpful to someone out there. You are helpful to many, many people. Thanks again to Eval Stanford for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up Podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. <laughs>